are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, tonight we're reading out of Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, you'll find this on page 1028 of the Pew Bible. And just to give us some context, it's been a little while, we're going to read verses 1 through 8, though focusing on verses 7 and 8, those two verses. Page 1028 of the Pew Bible, we're reading Revelation 1, verses 1 through 8, focusing on 7 and 8. Hear the word of God. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. You and I live in a fallen world. This fallen world is filled with troubles and tragedies and conflicts. There are wars and rumors of wars. All we have to do is think of Ukraine. Nations rise against nations. Countries experience turmoil within. Marriages break down. Families are split apart. Children are abused. Human trafficking economic meltdowns, natural disasters, and, of course, the ever-present death. What are we to make of all this? How are we to cope with all of that? Well, I think John helps us to put these things in perspective in the latter part of this salutation. In the two verses under our consideration, he highlights the absolute sovereignty of Jesus Christ. He is the great creator as well as the consummator of human history. And what is happening on earth is not some chaotic array of random events. As confusing as these things may be to you and I, it is all part of God's eternal plan and purpose. It will culminate with Christ's second coming, the final reckoning, and his eternal reign. And from that eternal and transcendent perspective, we are to evaluate all the things that we've considered already. So first of all, we consider his second coming in verse 7. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. 
And that first word, behold, demands our attention. This is something important. People will say the word behold about many things, oftentimes relatively insignificant things. But when God says behold, you can rest assured that it is of the utmost importance. This voice from heaven grabs our attention and directs our concentration as if he was saying, stop what you're doing. Think about what I'm about to say and take it to heart. The hour of his return is near. He wants us to bear in mind that the Lord Jesus is going to come back to earth. And scripture reveals that in history, there are three comings of Christ. There is his coming in the flesh at his incarnation when he was born of the Virgin Mary. There is his coming in the spirit at Pentecost recorded in Acts chapter 2. And there is his coming with the clouds at the end of time, which is what this text deals with. And there is nothing in our experience that can compare with that event. In Scripture, clouds are associated with the glorious presence of Yahweh. When it refers to coming with the clouds, that has to do with a divine prerogative. Remember the pillar of cloud that led Israel through the wilderness for 40 years. The psalmist says in Psalm 104 that God himself is one who makes the clouds his chariot. Isaiah tells us the Lord rides on a swift cloud in coming to judge, chapter 19, verse 1. And so clearly from these few texts, we find that the prerogative of coming with the clouds belongs to the Lord. Then there is that remarkable prediction of Messiah by the prophet Daniel. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And right there in Daniel 7, the rabbis should have realized that Messiah was divine. Isaiah claimed that the son of man would do what only God is able to do, ride the clouds. And then in the fullness of time, Jesus himself bore witness to this at his trial. The high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. <laughs> the high priest knew exactly what Jesus was doing, equating himself with God. That's why Caiaphas tore his garments and accused our Lord of blasphemy. So when Jesus, or when John says that he's coming with the clouds, what he's doing is affirming the deity of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus not only fulfilled Daniel's prophecy, but he wields infinite power. And the feelings with which one regards his coming corresponds to the person's disposition. You see, very, dis very different dispositions will regard the same event in different ways. Some will desire it. Others will dread it. Some will view it with pleasure. Others with pain. To an ancient people living under the crushing rule of the Roman Empire, this would have been very comforting. To anyone troubled by sin, misery, cruelty, or injustice, this is consoling. Jesus Christ, the God-man, is coming with the clouds to set everything right. 
And please note that Christ's coming will be both visible and public. It's not going to be hidden or obscured. It says every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. When he comes, it will be visibly in human form, arrayed in unprecedented splendor. This is what the angels said to the disciples when our Lord ascended. Remember in Acts chapter 1? Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus went up visibly into heaven. He will descend visibly from heaven. As God manifests in the flesh, his body is the vehicle in which he will come to judge the earth. And we get an idea of his appearance from what John says later on in this chapter. He tells us that when he saw Jesus, he was clothed with a long robe. He had a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like snow and the eyes like flame of fire and his feet were like burnished bronze and his voice like the roar of many waters. Seeing will not be as it is now a matter of choice or preference or inclination. Everyone will of necessity behold the coming of the great king. Try to imagine yourself in that assembly and seeing him in the flesh. With our own eyes and our resurrected bodies, we will behold him. Even Job says this. I know that my Redeemer lives, he claimed. And at the last, he'll stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. You see what old Job realized? Every person summoned from the grave and arraigned at the bar of justice, both the living and the dead, the great and the small, every human being. You'll see Herod and Pilate and Judas and Caesar there, as well as Abraham, Moses, David, and Paul. And it'll be a great and awesome spectacle that the entire universe assembled will witness. Currently, much of Christ's work in the church and this world is invisible to the eye. He's working mysteriously through ordinary means, as we so often say. These are spiritual methods. And yes, in the lives of his people, we find evidence of the Spirit's power. For example, the values of God's church are antithetical to the values of the world, or they should be. The greatest are servants, the first are last. We die so that we live. These are paradoxical in the world's eyes. And like our master, we glorify God by humbling ourselves and serving others. But the world cannot see him working for such things are spiritually discerned. They don't recognize it. The Spirit's work of grace is unrecognized and undervalued and misjudged. Sinners suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and they willfully shut their eyes. They disregard the evidence of God's eternal power and divine nature. They refuse to believe what the Bible says about creation out of nothing. They reject the doctrine of providence and the truth of salvation and the reality of his return. But our text tells us, that Christ will appear publicly and in unprecedented glory. 
And then no one will have the choice of seeing or not seeing because every eye will see him. Christ will come and everyone will behold him either to their delight or their destruction. As Paul tells the Thessalonians, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Paul goes on. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Don't you see that when he comes, those who pierced him will see this for themselves? Whether Gentiles or Jews, it makes no difference. The very ones who nailed him will be witnesses to him. And yet not only them, but everyone, since you and I also pierced him with our sins. He'll be seen by those whose iniquities drove the nails and thrust the spear. We did this with our undisguised hostility. We did this by our contemptuous scorn and our cold indifference and our heartless ingratitude and our selfish neglect and, oh yes, our worldliness. His perfect righteousness will be confessed by every tongue and his absolute lordship will be conceded by every bent knee. And it'll be a glorious return. It ought to thrill the heart of every true Christian because all of those sins are wiped away by his precious blood. That's his second coming. But then there's the final reckoning. Verse 7 goes on. All tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. Now there is some question as to what exactly John means here by the term wail. When he says all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. It's an old Greek word that means literally to cut. It's used in Matthew 21 when it says the crowd cut branches. Very simple word. But it was also commonly used for mourners who cut themselves as an expression of grief. So does this mean here in verse 7 that the unbelieving tribes of the earth will wail in fear at his coming? Or does it mean that a believing remnant will mourn truly with repentant joy? At first glance, I think it seems to indicate the terror of the pagan world. But some have concluded differently because of the early, earlier predictions, like the language that we read in Zechariah 12. Remember what it said? I'll pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child and weeps bitterly over him. So the prophet looks ahead to the day when the Jews would mourn for their sin. It's a mourning that ends in rejoicing as it was fulfilled at the cross. John 19, he uses the same language when he writes this. These things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. So when John uses the same language to describe the reaction, some think that what they're talking about are Christians. 
All the tribes of the earth, all the Christians of the earth will wail on account of him in sincere, repentant joy. But the term wail can be used differently in different contexts. I know this is pretty complex, but bear with me. The term wail can be used as in Zechariah for true inward sorrow. But the same word can be used by Jesus for unrepentant outward remorse. Listen to what he says in chapter 24 of Matthew. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. There is no indication in Scripture that all the tribes will repent of sin. In fact, John tells us that the warnings God gives will be spurned by most of the people that live on the earth when there is a return. Revelation says the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. So the text seems to describe the great wail of humanity when they encounter the returning Jesus. It indicates how unbelievers will be filled with remorse but not penitence. They will see Jesus in his glory and they will beat their chests with their fists for the wicked lives that they had lived. In life, they refuse to acknowledge him and at the end, they cannot receive him and they will not repent and they will realize that it's far too late to repent and their wailing will be the hopeless grief of sinners who must face final judgment. It will be the bitter anguish of those who will be cast ultimately into the lake of fire. And on that day, unbelievers will not be able to conceal their pain or their distress. They will know for certain that the Lord Jesus will demand a reckoning for their souls, and that will be a dreadful scene. Nothing on earth compares to its horror. John gives us a glimpse in Revelation 6. The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? And that will be the experience of all who refuse to receive Christ Jesus as Lord. But notice how John concludes this sobering description with the expectation of its completion. Even so, he says, amen. Being carried along by the Spirit, John expresses joy over Christ's return. The crown of righteousness is laid up for all who loved his appearing, according to 2 Timothy 4. So here he responds with the expression of hopeful longing for the second coming. Christ's attributes will be displayed and his character glorified and his innocence vindicated and his word honored and his counsel unfolded and his predictions fulfilled and his people glorified with him. And that's such a significant truth. Would not all God's people respond like this even so? Amen. No future event is as clearly and repeatedly revealed as the second coming of Jesus. Psalm 96. 
Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar, let the field exult, and all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. Why? Because he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. But then finally, there is the eternal reign that we read about in verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And we've already encountered the threefold description of God earlier on in the chapter. The phrase, who is and who was and who is to come, highlights his changeless sovereignty. The God-man has his being in and of himself, and he gives being to all of his creatures. He is one for whom time and space impose no restriction whatsoever. He's eternal. He's past, he's present, he's future. He's the same for the Old Testament church, the New Testament church, and the heavenly church triumphant. Our Savior is able and willing to save us to the uttermost. He is our great high priest, and he's the Alpha and the Omega. And that's what we call a merism. Perhaps you've heard of that before. A merism are two, two contrasting words that refer to a totality. I searched high and low. That means I searched for it everywhere. You know that. You know my sitting down and my rising up. Well, that means you know everything. God uses the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, the Alpha and the Omega, to identify himself as Lord. He controls it all. Nothing is outside of his sovereign power. Elsewhere, it says he's the beginning and the end, the first and the last, everlasting to everlasting. He's before all things and beyond all things and over all things, and he is, as he declares so plainly, the Almighty. Nine times in Revelation itself, he's called the Almighty. You think he wants to emphasize that? God wants us to know that Jesus Christ holds the reins of power. And no one can resist his might, and nobody can thwart his plan, and no one can divert his purpose. The Lord Jesus is above, beyond, and over any kind of power or manipulation. And you, if you're a Christian, are in intimate union with him. As Kess prayed, what do we have to fear? <laughs> is there any reason to be anxious in the face of escalating evil? Triumph of wickedness? Can we trust in Jesus Christ? Is there any reason to be anxious given his sovereign power and his everlasting love? In closing, let me just say we should keep in mind the certainty of his coming and we should encourage each other with these words. He who inhabits eternity sees everything now as if it had already taken place. It is so certain that the Bible gives both clear and constant teaching on this event that hasn't even happened yet. We have no reason to fear. Christ will come back and he'll take us home. But then secondly, we ought to let the truth of his return influence the way that we think and act in the world. Peter says this, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. You see, well, let's evaluate the events of providence that I listed at the beginning 
in light of the truth of God's word. His second coming puts everything into proper perspective. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, for example, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Everything the world calls great and splendid and worthwhile is passing away. Imagine the scene at Christ's return when everything comes to light. When proud unbelievers realize all the predictions of judgment are true. When persecuted believers rejoice in the long-awaited day of deliverance. When he who was unjustly judged and condemned by wicked men will appear in all of his glory. And Christ will return like lightning and the final judgment will commence. So let's pray that we can heed Peter's counsel and live lives of godliness. Because the end of Revelation says this, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible revelation in the book of Revelation. We thank you for the promise of our Lord's coming. We're grateful that you've called us into fellowship with yourself so that his arrival can be met with our shouts of joy and rejoicing. Please help us to live in light of this truth. Enable us to live lives of expectancy and godliness and hope. And enable us to encourage one another with these words and this truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.